Today, I want to chat with you about who we are, kind of where we're at in time, and mostly where we're headed in the coming days. 29 years ago, Grace Fellowship started with Debbie and me coming together with four couples we had gotten to know in the area. We met in our one-bedroom apartment in Latham Village, and we also met <clears throat> in each other's homes. Debbie and I kind of affectionately called um, the area where we lived in Latham Village the Gospel Ghetto. Isn't that an <laughs> affectionate name? Because <clears throat> it was a bit run down at the time, but it's what we could afford. $435 a month. Yes, that was the price. And the plan in the early days was simple when the church started. We just wanted to keep the main thing the main thing. We wanted our lives to be our ministry, to live on mission for Jesus Christ, and hopefully, hopefully represent him well in the Capital District and beyond. We were young, energetic, full of hopes and dreams. Well, that was 29 years ago. We had no building, no budget, no board, and no bills, okay? Uh, but as we started, we soon established an elder board. Uh, we were actually had a storefront building donated that we could use temporarily. We created our very first budget, and trust me, the bills began to pour in as we dived into the deep end of ministry. We certainly had no blueprint for what we were doing. I'd never started a church before. I'd never been a senior pastor. Frankly, I didn't know what I was doing, but we just kind of made it up as we went, so to speak. We learned, we grew, we made tons of mistakes, but by God's grace, we tried to learn from our mistakes and make corrections, and we kept on going. And above all, above all, we just prayed to God that we would be a church that could keep the main thing the main thing. And let me just say that one of the greatest blessings of this journey has been some of the incredible people God has allowed us to work alongside of. Now, I'm not going to start naming names, because if I did, I would, I would inevitably leave some people out. But it just seemed like God knew exactly who we needed. You know why it seemed that way? Because God knew exactly who we needed to come alongside and work with us. And we are so honored to know some of these amazing people, and many are still a vital part of grace today, some of the finest Christians that we have ever known. Now, what a journey this has been. I mean... <laughs> It's been wonderful. It's been exciting. There's been lots of twists and turns. And here we stand 29 years into this thing, and God has been so good. In fact, you could just write over the whole story the amazing grace of God. Today, Grace has three healthy campuses with thousands of people that were you to stop them on the street and say, hey, what is your church home? They would say, Grace Fellowship is my church home. We're blown away by what God has done. But what about the future? Where are we 
headed. If you know me, you know I don't spend much time dwelling on the past. Oh, it's fine to look in the rearview mirror for a moment and take a glance just to get perspective, but my eyes are on the road ahead. It's just the way God has wired me. What about the future? That's what I want to talk to you about today. And for the sake of this message, I'd like to describe our future in three words, storming the gates, storming the gates. And by the end of this message, I think you'll understand a lot more clearly what I mean by that. In Matthew 16, Jesus had a strategic conversation with his disciples. I want us to read this starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16. And then I want to spend some minutes talking about the implications of this for us today. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades Hades, by the way, is just one of three Greek words used for hell. Hades is one, Gehenna is another, Tartarus is a third, and they're all used in the New Testament. This is referring to that awful place where people are shut out from the blessing of God and out of his presence. The gates of Hades, or hell, as your translation may say, will not prevail against it or overcome it. Now, I believe that the setting for this conversation was very intentional and very strategic on Jesus' part. They've been with Jesus for about two years up till now. They've watched him do amazing miracles. They've listened to him teach. He's mentored them about what it means to be a disciple. But now, oh, He's taken them to the northern region of the Holy Land, a region known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, here, there's so much I want you to know about this because I think the setting is strategic. You could call it this the red light district of the Holy Land. Back when I was 24 years old, I moved to Amsterdam in the Netherlands and lived there for over a year, for about 13 months during my 24th and 25th year of life. And in Amsterdam, uh, it is kind of known for its red light district. When I lived there, we were told by city authorities, they had statistics on this, there were 30,000 prostitutes in the red light district. Prostitution was legal. It was taxed like uh, any other business. And so people came from all over the world, literally, to Amsterdam's infamous red light district. I'm told you could buy uh, just about any drug, any substance, have any kind of experience you were looking for in the red light district. Well, Caesarea Philippi 
was sort of the red light district of the Holy Land. And most devout Jewish people didn't want anything to do with this place. They were kind of persnickety as it was about who they ate with or where they hung out. They didn't want to be, quote, contaminated by a place like this. They had a a strong sense of us and them, and they tried desperately to stay away from anything that they considered unclean. So get this. While Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles from Galilee, it was like a world apart in terms of its values. Politically, it was ruled by Herod Philip. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great, and he had made Caesarea Philippi his headquarters, not just because it had plenty of water and it had lush pasture land, that's true, but it was also his headquarters because it was a center of immoral activity and pagan worship. It was the center of the worship of Pan, one of the Greek gods. In fact, the Greeks had actually named this city Panius in his honor. The background of that is that in 198 BC, there'd been a famous battle there and the Greeks won the battle and they believed that Pan, their great God Pan, had given them the victory in battle and so they built shrines and temples to Pan and other gods in Panias, what we know as Caesarea Philippi. Now, Does that get your mind spinning? I mean, what a provocative place for Jesus to have a strategic conversation. I believe he did it to make a strategic point. According to the historian Ray Vanderlaan, Caesarea Philippi was believed by many in the day to be literally the gateway to the underworld. You see, the Pagans in Jesus' day believed that their fertility gods went to live in the underworld in the wintertime, but then they would hopefully come back in the spring. And so they, they traveled. This was the belief in the popular mindset. These fertility gods traveled to and from the underworld, and they did it through the portal of caves. Well, guess what? There was a famous cave in Caesarea Philippi. It was right at the base of an enormous cliff at the base of Mount Hermon, and water flowed from a spring right out of the mouth of that cave. Here's what I'm saying. The people in Caesarea Philippi literally believed that their city was the gates of hell. And in order to entice their gods to return each spring, they would engage in an orgy of prostitution. And I'll not get into a lot of the details of this, just not to offend sensibilities. But there was a good deal of bestiality, sex with animals, that was a part of this ritual. So what you have here in this city is a city of eager pagan worshipers literally knocking on the doors of hell. So I gotta ask you guys again, why would Jesus pick this place? I mean, come on. Of all the places he could have chosen to have a conversation like this, why this? 
I believe that Jesus did not want his followers to cower away from evil, but rather to storm the gates of hell. I believe that Jesus, in picking this place, and in light of what he said in this place, wanted to send a clear message that his church, the church he was gonna build, was not to hide behind the walls of its buildings with a fortress mentality. No, the church Jesus envisioned was going to be a church on the move, literally storming the gates of hell. Now, brothers and sisters, the implications of this are staggering for us. That means that as followers of Jesus today, we're not to be so worried about being contaminated or made unclean by our association with the world that we avoid unbelievers. That's the last thing I think Jesus wants. Jesus wants a church that's taking the gospel to the most unlikely and uncomfortable places. I'm saying to you today, that Jesus wants you to get out of your comfort zone. What would that mean for you? You know, we're all very different. For some of us, getting out of our comfort zone might be walking across the street from where we live. For others, it might be going across town, maybe to a different section. For other people, getting out of your comfort zone would represent going across the sea, far, far away from home, because that's where you really struggle where customs and cultures and beliefs are just really different from yours. For some of you, hey, your comfort zone, getting out of that would represent walking across the room and talking to that hardened cynic, that intellectual, perhaps, who gave up on God years ago. But wherever you go with Jesus, you are storming the gates of hell. So what is that gonna look like for us as a church as we continue to move into the future together with our Lord Jesus Christ? I, I, I wanna tell you today, it's gonna mean we work with all kinds of people, up and outers, down and outers, rich and poor, privileged and underprivileged. But here's the thing, we must never let our lack of faith limit God. We must always be willing to have the kind of passionate, expansive vision that says, God, you're the one doing the work. We're just kind of along for the ride here. Take us where you want us to go. Jesus is the one building the church, guys. He's just called us to join him. And I've often said in the past, you wanna know my job description? My job description is to get out of Jesus' way. Because I can't build a church. Jesus can, and Jesus said he would. My number one job description is to get out of Jesus' way and let him do what he said he would do. So, as we follow him, whether that takes us to posh and pretty places or putrid and pathetic places, when we're going with Jesus, it's gonna be storming the gates of hell. So let's get really specific now. You say, Pastor, you said you're going to talk about the future. Well, what does that look like? What is the future of grace going to look like? We're going to storm the gates of hell. 
That's what it's going to look like. You want to know where we're going? We're storming the gates of hell. Now, now, let me tell you what that means. When we come alongside, you just saw a video of Serve as One that happened last Saturday, like eight days ago or something. And we only do that two or three times a year on average, that particular kind of coming together. But, but dozens and dozens of you are involved in serving through our Grace in Action partners. Our strategy there is to engage in good deeds that will lead to goodwill that will eventually issue in sharing the good news. And dozens of you do that on a regular basis. So what does the future of grace look like? We're gonna have a lot more of that kind of awesome kingdom work. That's one of the ways we're gonna storm the gates of hell. Can I tell you why that is storming the gates of hell? I'm excited too. And the reason is because that puts us in touch with some of the most broken people in our area. People who've been sex trafficked. People who are homeless and hungry. People who have food insecurity. People who are experiencing domestic violence and literally live every day of their lives in fear and paranoia. It puts us in their lives. And as we go in Jesus' name, we have the privilege, oh, this is incredible, of storming head first into the darkness that has engulfed their lives, and we get to shine the light of Christ. Wow, what a privilege. And I want to tell you, that is storming the gates of hell. But let me go on, because it sure doesn't end there. We're going to keep on going like we've been doing now for 29 years. We're going to keep on going globally to share Christ around the world. Now that the pandemic is waning a bit, the possibilities of short-term missions are really opening up again. And so we've got global partners too, just like we've got local partners. We've got global partners. It's good when Christians get together, would you agree? And do things because we're better together, really. And so we've got these partners in Central and South America. We've got partners in Africa and and in Asia. We've got partners in Europe who have boots on the ground already. And they're making a difference. But we we get to come alongside them to offer encouragement and help and bolster their ministry. They learn from us. We learn from them. And together, we are more effective for the kingdom. You see, one of the things that Jesus made clear from choosing Caesarea Philippi is that he does not want his church to kind of get the holy huddle mentality. Do you know what I mean when I say the holy huddle mentality? It's a very common mentality where we cower behind our church walls and we talk, we talk about how bad that old awful world out there is. Oh, they're so horrible. They don't know Jesus like we do and they're just so bad. Like we don't have our problems, huh? Right? They're just so, that horrible, oh, if Jesus would only come back and get us out of this horrible world. That is not the attitude he wants us to have. We're called to get out of our holy huddles 
and penetrate the world with the love of Jesus. That's where it gets exciting. Some of you are football fans. Question, what would you think of a football team that never got out of the huddle? You just, you're just watching them there, and there's, they look like they're, having, they're holding hands in the huddle. Big old strapping linemen holding hands with each other. They're actually laughing. They're talking. Wow, it looks like a good conversation's going on. It looks like they're making plans or something. They're having a great time in the huddle. But what would you think if they never broke the huddle? You'd say, that's one worthless football team right there. Because, are you listening? The point of a huddle is to get out of the huddle. The point of, don't get me wrong, huddles are fine for making plans, getting a little moment of rest, getting your breath, making sure you're on the same page with the strategy. That's fine. But a football team that never gets out of the huddle has forgotten the point. The point is to get on that line of scrimmage and execute a play. The point is to move the ball up the field and score some points. And I want to tell you today, friends, any church that is not engaged on mission with Jesus has forgotten why it exists. May that never be us. We are called to huddle, to gather It's a command, actually. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's actually to be a normative part of church life. We're called to gather. Make no mistake. We're also called to go. That also is a command. So are you getting this? God is not schizophrenic. He knows what he's doing. He says to his people, I want you to gather and I want you to go. I want you to huddle for a while, but then I want you to get out of the huddle and make a play. I want you to get on the line of scrimmage and I want you to move the stinking ball up the field. You are to gather and go, gather and go. And if I know anything from 2,000 years of church history, God's people are a whole lot better at gathering than we are at going. That's the general rule And that is easy to prove just by a little reading of church history. So what are we going to do in the future? We're going to obey Jesus and we're going to keep on gathering in worship. We're going to keep worshiping our great God in spirit and truth. And we're going to keep on preaching and teaching his word as he told us to. And we're going to keep on having strategic fellowship and edification because all of that he's told us. In other words, we're going to huddle. But we're not going to get a holy huddle mentality, folks. Listen to me right now. We're going to get out of the huddle and we're going to keep going and serving in the far corners of the world. We're gonna keep going across the street, across the town, across the room, and across the globe. And when we do that, we are storming the gates of hell. All right? Yeah, you can clap. That's okay. We're storming the gates of hell. So we're gonna keep on joining Jesus in his mission. What a privilege that is. So, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Jesus leads his disciples to this 
weird place, Caesarea Philippi, where these, these temples and shrines to Zeus, to Pan and all these other false gods. But have you driven around the capital district lately? Have you read the local papers? Have you looked online at what, what's happening in our region? Have you listened to the news of just the last 24 hours? Or even better, have you walked the streets of your city? We live in Caesarea Philippi. There's a pantheon of gods worshipped in our culture. Gods of illicit sex, gods of unbridled pleasure, gods of greed, gods of materialism, gods of racism and superiority, gods of unbelievable greed, gods of selfishness. People are worshiping all different kinds of gods. And I'm just kind of curious, if I did a survey on the streets of Albany, if I did a survey in the suburbs of Half Moon, if I were to do a survey in the village of Saratoga, same survey Jesus did, who do people say that I am? How do you think people would answer that? You know what I think? I think we live in a time when there's mass confusion about who Jesus is. And that's why, friends, as we talk about our future and where we're going, that's why this fall at Grace, we're doing what I'm calling a full court press on evangelism. It's a basketball term. If you don't care about basketball, just we're gonna pour a lot of energy and effort into evangelism. Starting this fall, to be exact, Tuesday, September 13th, we're gonna put a massive emphasis upon sharing Jesus and who he really is. One of the tools we'll use is called the Alpha Course. It's a specific program of presenting the gospel over 11 weeks of time, and that's what we're gonna do. It started at a wonderful church in London, and God has honored it all over the world. We're gonna do Alpha this fall. Now, let me explain something carefully, because some of you are grieving over family members who don't know Christ yet. Some of you have coworkers you've been praying for. Some of you have children, parents, cousins, siblings, neighbors, who as far as you know, don't have a saving relationship with Christ. Here's what I'm saying to you. This may be the greatest opportunity they ever have in their lifetime to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Don't miss this. I'm gonna urge you even now to begin to write, even though we're months ahead of Alpha starting, we're months in advance, I wanna urge you to start writing down names of people and praying for them by name. And I would like to encourage you to pray Acts 26, 18 for the people whose names you write down. Here's what that says. That this is Paul, the apostle, telling King Agrippa what God told him to do. He said, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's what God wants to do. 
And there's a reason. So that, purpose statement, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I'm gonna ask you to pray Acts 26, 18, that God would bring the breakthrough for scores and scores of people who don't know Christ. Already the church is a buzz. I was in the lobby after the first service, and I'm telling you, some of the best Christians I know are already buzzing. It's like they had been drinking or something. I mean, they, come, they were giddy. They were giddy with excitement about Alpha already, and we're months in advance. God is going to save scores and scores of people this fall. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. Can we, can, we just, can we just cut through all the smoke? Can we just get right down to the bottom line? At the end of the day, when it's all over, on the great day of judgment, what the Bible calls the day, it doesn't matter what your sports team was. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter your political affiliation. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter your country of origin, your nuclear family, your ethnicity, your skin color. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter which TV show you enjoyed. At the end of the day, there are only two categories of people, saved and lost. And a church that is not on mission with Jesus, helping people find a relationship with Christ has forgotten why we exist. Folks, I want to tell you, my passion is evangelism. I want to see people come to know Jesus and then get better acquainted. And as we do that, we are literally storming the gates of hell. Now, don't worry. You're, you're going to hear a lot more about Alpha before it actually gets here. And everybody at Grace is going to know that God is about to do an awesome thing. But again, I ask you, please get started even now, writing down the names of some people and praying for them by name. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that is ultimately the most important question of all. It's the most important question you could ever be asked. It's the most important question you will ever answer. And you know, I, I know that many of you know this already, but if you're listening today, perhaps you checked us out online, perhaps you're maybe a guest or you're new to this whole Christian thing, I want you to know something about us. The reason we're so passionate about the future at Grace is because Jesus is already there. We're not going into this unknown, unchartered kind of future where, oh, I wonder if God's... No, Jesus is already there in our future. And the reason we're so passionate about Jesus is because he's one of a kind. He's not just one guru or prophet in the list of a long, long list of gurus and prophets. He is unique. He stands alone. He's greater than Buddha, greater than Confucius, greater than Muhammad, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than any mere, mere human who has ever lived. He is God among us, 
that he is the son of the living God and he came to give his life for us. See, this is is the good news. This is the salvation story. Here's the truth about us. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's standards. But God didn't give up on us. He came into that mess. He clothed himself in human flesh and he lived among us and ultimately he went to an old rugged cross where he died an atoning death in my place and yours so that our sins could be forgiven. That's the God we worship. He's a God of amazing holiness and a God of amazing love. He dealt with our sin problem. And Jesus himself declared in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I don't know about you, but wow, this, this passage just boggles my imagination. Simon Peter said, you're the Christ son of the living God. And Jesus said, you nailed it, Pete. That's it. You're absolutely right. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, there it is, on this rock, I will build my church. What rock is he talking about? On the solid rock of Peter's declaration of faith that Jesus is the son of the living God on the solid rock that he gave his life on the cross as a substitutionary atonement, on the solid rock that he rose again bodily from the grave, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. On the solid rock that when I place my faith in him, I have eternal life. That's the solid rock that Jesus is building his church on today. And that's the future that we're so passionate about at Grace. And so as we proclaim that message through word and deed, we are literally storming the gates of hell. When I was a kid growing up, um, we sang this song, and it went something like this. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So I want to close in a bit of an unusual way. At Half Moon, at at Latham, at Saratoga, for all of you listening online, I realize that many of you are already robustly engaged in the mission. You're right there with Jesus. You're going across the globe, across the room, across the street, across town. You are on mission with Jesus. I say bravo, brothers and sisters. Keep on going and Keep on doing, storming the gates of hell. But, but can I speak to, I don't know how many, but some of you, and I'm not being mean here. I Trust me, I am not being mean. But if you were accused in a court of law of being a Christian, not being mean, I'm not being mean, I'm not sure there'd be enough evidence to convict you. I'm just, I'm just trying to be real here. So I'm speaking to both of those groups right now. Those who are actively engaged, robustly, all out, praise God, doing this with Jesus. 
And I'm speaking to those of you who would say, no, I am. I'm, I'm in. I'm a Christian. But, but honestly, not a lot of evidence right now. Here, here's my question as we close. Are you willing today? Now, don't do this just to bluff. Don't do it just because your spouse stood. Just because your friend stood up. I, if you are willing to say that, whatever category you'd be in, if you're willing to say, I want to be in with Jesus on the future. I don't care where it takes. It may take me across the globe. It may take me to that hardened person who just to shut me out. It may take me into some dangerous places way out of my comfort. But you're saying today, I want to be in with Jesus in the future. I'm going to ask you to do a bold thing. And I just want you to stand up where you are. You say, I'm in with Jesus. I, I, whatever that means, whatever that takes, at all of our locations, just stand up where you are. And I want to pray for all of us right now. Father, as a great evangelist once said, some wish to live within the sound of chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. These people standing are saying, Lord, we're ready to storm the gates. We're going with you into an exciting future. Father, that that's the passion we have. Father, I pray today that as we get out of our comfort zone, whatever that's going to look like exactly, I ask, Lord, that you would show us that you are already there and we have nothing to fear. You're already there. You're way ahead of us on this. And Father, I ask finally that as we continue to go on mission in your name, I ask that you would save scores and scores of people who right now don't have that relationship with you. And Lord, if you'd be so pleased as to use us as catalysts, as, as just instruments in your hands, we would be so honored. But may you get the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Let's give God praise together. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you, God. Amen.